Father, we ask that you would show us this morning your servant, Jesus Christ. We want to see him clearly as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. We want to see him clearly as the greater Moses, one who we ought to listen to. We want to see him as the greatest of all prophets, as the offspring of Abraham. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with this gathering this morning so that as we hear Peter yet preach again to the lost in Israel, we too would be rightly convicted of our sin, that we would repent and return to you. I ask that you would do that for my brothers and sisters and for all your true churches throughout this city, this state, and this nation. We are so thankful that this is your day, Lord, and there are many of your people who are gathered in settings just like this, bringing worship and honor and praise to you, for you are so worthy. Father, I pray that the power that we see here poured out on this lame beggar would be poured out on us this hour, and that by your Holy Spirit through faith that we would live, we would live as a people utterly changed by the gospel of grace. We want to be those people, and we want to be that type of a church. We ask you to do that to bless us, Lord, to bless this community, Cambrian Park, and to bring yourself honor and glory through us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hmm. Some days we, we sound like a thousand people singing. Today was one of those days I just stopped and I thought, well, how many people are in here singing? Um, I like that. You know, sometimes I think we should just open up these windows so people driving by could hear us singing. What do you think of that? All right. Um, Acts chapter 3, if you don't have your Bible up, open to that, please do so. We get a chance to, to see the second sermon of the Apostle Peter. I confessed to you three weeks ago that I was plagiarizing a sermon, and I did. I plagiarized Peter's first sermon. I'm going to confess to you again. I'm going to plagiarize again. I'm going to take again Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 3, and we're going to work through it. A lot of similarities from the first sermon, and then some distinct differences that I will try to draw out from the passage today. The, the most prominent of which is the identification of Jesus Christ as servant. Now, when I use that term servant, you probably don't hear it the same way that most people throughout human history heard it. Servants were essential to civilization. Servants were used to raise up children and families. They were used to cultivate civil and economic prosperity. Ser servants were used to go to war and fight for countries. But when we, as a culture, when we hear the word servant, we often think of a place we don't want to be. I would say even now, in our own cultural moment, we usually look down on servants. And we, we look at it as a place you might start in life, but you don't want to end up as a servant when you die. In other words, in our self-serving culture, the mantra would be better to be served than to serve. Now, if you know anything about Christianity, that runs contrary to the entire Christian worldview. Even more importantly, it runs contrary to the very mission of God, sending His Son, the faithful servant, to die for the sins of many. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, after Jesus taught the church, His disciples, that a fundamental kingdom principle is serving one another. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 20, 28. He said, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, 
came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the greatest mission by the greatest man in human history was a mission of service. Service. And not just any service, but you know well the giving of his own life, the sacrificing of his own life to redeem sinners like us. Now, up to this point in our journey in Acts, we've seen some amazing things take place. Jesus has already been ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has already been poured out. 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church. And so the church had grown rapidly post-Pentecost. And then we saw last week, if you were here with us, we saw the first post-Pentecost miracle. Peter and John are going up to the temple to worship God in the afternoon, and there's a lame beggar who had been lame from birth, sitting outside of the, the, court, of the Gentile, court of the Jews, unable to enter and worship God. And God, through Peter, heals this man completely. And then brings such a crowd that Peter has an opportunity, and he's not going to miss it, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ once again. And the sermon is actually, it's a very basic sermon. It's divided into two main parts. The first part is him making the connection between this man's healing and the power that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he calls all the Jews there to repent of the rejection of Jesus and put their faith in him. So if there were a theme for our sermon today, it would be this. God's servant restores repentant sinners. God's servant, Jesus Christ, restores, makes whole, makes complete those who repent to God. And so I'd like to look at that. I'd like to look at the work of this servant. And I'd like us to receive it with great joy and great encouragement. And I'd like to do that in two ways. That how sinners like us can, one, be empowered by faith. And number two, be restored through faith. To be empowered by faith and to be restored through faith. Now, I imagine most of you would say, you know, I could use a little power this morning. I could use a little power after this last year. Most of us... Lori has commented to me several times, we have seemed weary this last year. It's been a hard year. There's a means by which we access power through Jesus Christ in faith that this lame beggar got, and I hope that we can get too. And even greater than that, a total understanding of the restoration that we have in Christ, that you can experience the refreshing and restoration and wholeness that God desires for you, sinner saved by grace. Amen? So do you want to be encouraged? You want to be empowered? I do, so let's, let's go. Point number one, empowered by faith. So we left off last week. If you remember, Peter, John, and this lame beggar who now can walk and leap, they're inside the court of the Jews. They're worshiping God. He's inside for the first time. And then they make their way, Peter, John, and this beggar, make their way to Solomon's colonnade. And Solomon's colonnade is on the eastern wall of the temple, some distance from the court of the Jews. And what's fascinating is that as they make their way, it's not in the narrative, but we know it must have happened. As they're making their way out of the sanctuary, through the court of the Gentiles, and to Solomon's colonnade on the eastern wall, literally thousands of people are starting to follow. And so Peter gets to Solomon's colonnade, and look at verse 11, we're told this, as the beggar clung to Peter and John, I don't know if he thought, you know, if if these guys leave, I'm going to lose my ability to walk, but he's hanging on to them. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And so there's this, there's an uproar in the city, 
and people are running because they heard that a miracle, a supernatural miracle had taken place. And so, of course, God is ordaining a scene, a great scene for Peter to preach his second sermon that's recorded here in the book of Acts to a captive audience. And so he sets it up, verse 12, he sets up this question. He says, listen, you don't have any idea how this man was healed, but I'm going to tell you, by what power was this lame man made well? But we don't, he asked that question in verse 12, but we don't get the answer until verse 16. And so verses 13, 14, and 15, he sets the stage for all those present to be rightly convicted of their sin, that they might repent and turn to God. Look at verse 12. We're told that when Peter saw it, that's the, the crowd, literally thousands had gathered. When he saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, speaking of the healing of the lame man, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? I don't know what their looks looked like, what the expression on their faces must have been. But he says, you guys are gazing at us as though we did this of our own power. Now the crowd knows this beggar. He had been there for years next to the gate called Beautiful, worshiping, pleading, and begging for alms. And yet now they see him walking, they see him leaping, and they saw, many of them saw him inside the court of the Jews worshiping God. And so the miracle's undeniable, and that's why they've gathered by the thousands. And so they rightly conclude God did something, but they wrongly conclude by what means God did it. And so Peter says, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety, as though our own devotion to God is so strong that we could make this man well? Why do you stare at us as though we have made him walk? And so what Peter does is, you're, you're right, a miracle took place, a supernatural miracle took place, but you're wrong in, in thinking that we did it. And Peter then begins to tell them that this man was made well by the power of God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. This was not going to be what they wanted to hear, my beloved. The thought of a miracle was great, but not coming from that man they had put to death. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He doesn't want anybody to be confused where the power came from. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And so Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he draws upon the, the patriarchal formula, going all the way back to Exodus chapter th- 3, saying the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, you know his name, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh who did this miracle. And not the Father, but specifically the Son. And he did that by what? Glorifying his servant Jesus. Now we already looked at that. that. That means that when Christ ascended into heaven, he was seated on the throne at the right hand of power of God, ruler of the heavens and the earth. And so he says, listen, turn your stares away from us because we're not the ones that made this man well. Turn your stares to Jesus Christ and put your gaze on him. Now again, as we saw three weeks ago in that sermon, there must have been a a hush over this crowd. Lots of excitement, lots of energy, lots of glory being given to God, and now suddenly Jesus' name is dropped in to their horror because they participated in his death. 
Servant is used here in verse 13 and then used verse again in verse 26. It's called an inclusio. They're bookends. And so one of the things that really stands out about this sermon of Peter's compared to the first one is the identification of Christ as servant. And you say, well, we know him to be like that. You know, the Bible only calls, it only gives Jesus that title four times. Twice here in Acts chapter 3 and two more times in Acts chapter 4. Christ talked about serving a lot, but when the title is ascribed to him, it's only here in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 4. And what Peter was doing, it was brilliant. Peter wants them to think of Isaiah 52 and 53. This is a Jewish crowd. He says, I want you to know who this Jesus really is. He is the suffering servant that the great prophet Isaiah prophesied to centuries ago. Isaiah called him the chosen servant of God, sent by God in whom God's soul delights. You see, Israel had always been identified as God's servant. But Israel did not fulfill their role to bring the gospel of grace to the nations. And so God, in his great wisdom, raised up someone from Israel, a true son of Israel, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. One who would suffer so that Israel and all the nations could be called back into a right relationship with the living God. Now we know that even in Isaiah, we're told that this servant is going to be exalted, lifted up into the heavens. But only after Isaiah 53, 11, the righteous one was handed over and delivered, Isaiah 53, 12, for execution. In other words, God had ordained this for centuries, that Jesus, the servant of God, would die for the sins of his people. Look at the latter part of verse 13 again. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14. But you denied, listen, the holy and righteous one, that's from Isaiah, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And then he says, to this we're witnesses. Again, my beloved, this is a cosmic uh uh-oh moment for all those listening. A dread and terror because they realized the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53, the one they had been waiting for to come and restore and make things new, they had actually murdered. They put him to death. The same person they delivered over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to be executed was their great Messiah. Peter calls him the holy and righteous one of God. That was a messianic title. Even the demons knew that. Remember Mark chapter 1 when Jesus appeared in Capernaum? And there was a a demon-possessed man in the temple. And the demon said, why are you here? Are you here to destroy us? Oh, holy one of God. So he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And then he calls him the author of life. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. The very one who spoke all creation into being. The very one who is the author of the resurrection of the dead. They had killed. And not only did they kill him by delivering him over to Pontius Pilate. That was bad enough. But Peter He wants them to be rightly convicted. They hand him over. Jesus and the murderer, Barabbas, then are offered, one's offered to be released in custom with the Passover. And they deny the author of life and they choose a murderer instead. And so Peter Peter is capitalizing on the irony of their decision. Murdering the author of life by granting life to a murderer is what they did. Murdering the author of life by granting life to a murderer. He wants the full weight of their rejection of God 
to be upon their hearts and minds. Listen to the episode from Matthew 27. So when they, the Jews, had gathered before Pilate, they said, Pilate said to them, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to release Barabbas or Jesus, listen to this, who is called Christ? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to him, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Two times, Pontius Pilate, a Roman pagan, rightly identifies Jesus as their Messiah, and twice they reject him as such. Even God prophesying through Pilate, and they will not hear it. They all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, chosen by God, sent by God, exalted by God, they had what? They had delivered over, they had denied, and they had murdered. And so like Barabbas, whose release they demanded, they too had become murderers. And not just of any man, but the man of God, the Son of God. Now, beloved, every single sin that you engage in, every single one is a rejection of the author of life and saying yes to death. Every time you sin, big and small, you are saying no to the author of life, no to holiness in God, and you are saying yes to death. Your own death, your relationship with God, your relationship with others. Peter said the suffering servant whom you denied and crucified, God raised up and exalted. And then he says, and it's by this man's power that this lame man can not only walk but leap and worship God too. Look at verse 16. His name, Jesus, there's an emphasis here in the original language, by faith in his name, Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith is that through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So remember, the question in verse 12 was, how did this man get, where did this man get the power to be made well? And he comes back here and he answers it in verse 16. But he doesn't just answer it. He tells us the source of the power, Jesus Christ, and he tells us the means that that power comes, and that is through faith. In fact, the NIV renders this much better. Let me read it to you. Verse 16 from the NIV says, By faith in the name of Jesus... This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, restored him, made him whole. So Jesus is the source of the power and faith is the vehicle by which it comes to us. Jesus is the source and faith is the vehicle. Dr. Luke had recorded actually in his gospel testimony a scenario of healing in Luke chapter 8 that I think conveys this perfectly. I love it when the Bible has illustrations, and I don't have to figure one out myself. They're usually never very good if I figure them out. The Bible's always much better. Luke chapter 8, we're told of a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all around denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Listen to this. 
and falling down before Jesus, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go in wholeness. The same suffering servant that healed the hemorrhaging woman on earth is the same suffering servant that healed our lame man from heaven. In other words, the same suffering servant who they murdered and is now exalted is able and eager to heal sinners now. He was able and eager to heal their sins for all who would repent and believe. And before Peter calls them, Peter, this was a great sermon, by the way. I mean, in every aspect, it was an amazing sermon. Before he calls them to repentance, he establishes two absolute necessary axioms of the Christian faith. Number one, man's healing comes from Jesus. Man's healing, your healing, the ultimate healing, which is our sin, comes to the person, Jesus Christ. And that power, number two, your second axiom, it comes through faith. He said, well, we know that. Do we know that? I mean, do we really know that? That in fact, all the power that you have to not only be saved, but to be sanctified and one day glorified before God comes to the person, Jesus Christ, and you know the means is faith. Nothing else. Not your own works, not your own morality, not your church attendance, but faith in the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life, God's servant. Do you really know that? Because that's got to be steeped in our faith or we miss the faith in total. Trusting in the person and the work and the power of Jesus. My beloved, every single person today is still offered the same opportunity to experience the perfect healing that the beggar enjoyed. The perfect healing through faith in the one that has the power to heal. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about your physical healing, that's possible too. God does that. But on this side of heaven, that's really not your greatest concern. Because even if you get healed right now, you're still going to die, right? What you need to be made whole is you need to be made holy by God. You need to be made righteous. Your sins need to be forgiven. In fact, that word here, perfect health, it's better translated wholeness. And we get that. Right? We want wholeness with God. The forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of a broken relationship with who? With the holy and righteous one, with the author of life. You know, seeing all the brokenness in the world today, a lack of wholeness amongst those created in the image of God to be stewards over God's creation, that's not difficult to see. I don't think you need to be terribly astute to look upon the world and see pain and suffering all the time, everywhere. What we do miss, though, my beloved, and I think it's very difficult for us to see, is the answer to that problem. I mean, just this last week in the news, we heard about Israel and Hamas and people dying as they were shelling rockets back and forth. We hear about suffering on our southern border. We hear about skyrocketing, skyrocketing national deficits. And we hear about pastors being arrested in Canada for proclaiming the gospel. We see it and we know it, but we don't know why we're so broken and we don't know how to overcome it. That seems to elude us. And so we chase after, culturally, we chase after a myriad of solutions. We talk about income redistribution and racial equality and freedom to choose our own gender and maybe even the environment. Maybe that'll help us. 
All vain attempts to make mankind whole with God. All vain attempts to overcome the real problem, which is our sin that separates us from the author of life. My beloved, if our alienation from God, who is the author of life, is the problem that keeps us and keeps our world from being whole, from living and loving without all the pain and the suffering that we see and have come to expect, then reconciliation with God must be the solution. Why aren't we hearing that from the President of the United States? Why isn't that at the top of the agenda? Reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. If God offers sinful man reconciliation only through his suffering servant, through the power of Jesus, then the only way, listen, the only way you or your family or your friends or this community can overcome all the brokenness, the lack of being whole, the lack of being perfectly healthy, the only way we can overcome that is through Jesus. That's it. That's why we talk about sharing the gospel so much. That's why we say, talk to your neighbor, share the gospel, make disciples, because this is the answer. You say, that's overly simplistic. Maybe so. I'm thankful for that. I like simple answers to complex problems. The complexity of the problems of this world in light of our sin will not be overcome by anything our politicians put before us. The complexities of the problems can only be overcome by the power that comes through the name of Jesus. You know this. We know this. This is not a magical spell. Back in verse 6, when Peter said to the man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk, he did not cast a spell on the man. He declared healing. But if that man had not in faith stood up and walked, he'd have still been there at the end of the day. And as soon as that man did believe that this Jesus had the power to make him whole, to heal his infirmity, the power of the exalted Christ literally, now listen, it literally filled his body, healed his legs, and enabled him to walk and leap and worship God. By faith. The power was there. It came through faith. The same power from the risen Lord, by the same faith, the means of grace is offered to each and every one of us today. Same power, same faith, same Savior. We think, oh, if I could just be there. Oh, I, I'd come to Peter and I'd say, oh, I got lots of things I need you to heal me. There are lots of things in my life that you can say. Say that little prayer again. Say that name of Jesus again. Not a magical spell. Power from on high that you have by faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ this morning, it's offered to you for salvation. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, you don't know what it means to repent and believe and walk by following Jesus. That's offered to you today by faith. Repent of your sins, trust in the Lord, and walk in holiness. And if you know the Lord, that same power that comes from Jesus through faith to make you holy, right? That is the command for God's people, is it not? When God said, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He said, well, I'm not very holy. Well, the power's there. The means is there. Christ through faith. It made this man, it says, perfectly healthy. I love that. Same power, same person, same faith offered to you today. To overcome. Listen, to overcome whatever struggle you may have is offered to you today in Christ. So if you're struggling with loneliness, many of us are during these times. It's one of the 
things we keep hearing from the community is we're out at the farmer's market and Planned Parenthood. Lots and lots of loneliness. Well, that's going to happen, right? If we go inside our house for a year and we close our doors and we come out, we're going to say, I'm a little lonely. Well, here's the good news. By faith in Jesus Christ, there's power to fill your loneliness with the, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and His church. Hard to be lonely when you're communing with the triune God and His children. If you're fighting off depression or discouragement or anxiety, faith in Jesus' name has the power to encourage you to be, as Paul said, to press on toward the goal to win the prize. If you're tired of struggling with the sin that you just keep playing with, you can't get rid of it. If you're tired of your life not bearing much fruit, this morning, this day, there's power in Jesus' name to overcome that sin once and for all, once and for all, to put it to death, to mortify it, and never be tempted by it again. And there's power in the name of Jesus to have you, saint, saved by grace, bear how much fruit? 30, 60, 100-fold. There's power this morning by grace through faith in Jesus. Power to become that type of tree that Jeremiah so eloquently described in Jeremiah 17. This is, I, I want to be this tree. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the vehicle. That's the faith. Whose confidence is in him. Listen to what God will do. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries. Oh, my beloved, no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I want to be that tree. I know most of you want to be that tree. How do you get there? Power in the name of Jesus, faith being the vehicle. Living like a child, a childlike faith before Christ, listening to him, listening to the word, listening to the Holy Spirit in the context of the church, and simply obeying. Oh, how revolutionary you say, Pastor. But it really is. And this is not profound, deep theology, and yet it's the very foundation of our walk with the Lord, is it not? Faith in the name of Jesus. Faith in the suffering servant so that we too, broken, lame, crippled sinners, we can not only be saved by grace through Christ, but we can be brilliant, beautiful, fruit-bearing trees in the midst of this current darkness. There's power to be saved. There's power to be sanctified. There's power to bear fruit so this world might become more whole. All right. You like that first point or not? There's power through faith in the name of Jesus. There's power through faith in the name of Jesus. I'll give you a second point. Sinners also can be restored completely through faith. Restored completely. The remainder of Peter's sermons is actually divided into two parts. Verses 17 through 21, he's calling the crowd to repent of their not receiving the Messiah. Right? They missed him. They not only missed him, they killed him. First part of the sermon, second part is to repent of that. And then in verses 20 to 26, he calls upon the scriptures, the Old Testament. And he says, I'm going to show, show you that he is in fact God's servant. So first the call to repentance. Look at verse 17. 
Peter says, and now, brothers, notice the, the tenderness of that. He's identifying with them. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Peter is bringing some needed relief to the sermon thus far. Right? He's already accused them of being murderers, murderers of the Son of God. So even though it was God's plan, God's plan for his suffering servant, as prophesied by Isaiah centuries earlier, to suffer and die, these Jews and these Gentiles who participated in it were fully guilty. They were the ones who accused him. They were the ones who arrested him. They rejected him. They beat him. And then they crucified him. So they are culpable for their actions. 100% guilty. And so after Peter establishes that clearly, he now brings a ray of hope. He brings the gospel in. Look at verse 17 again. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So he's even talking about the Romans now. When they killed the author of life, the holy and righteous one of God. They did not recognize that he was the suffering servant sent and prophesied to in Isaiah 53. In other words, it was a sin of ignorance. He said, well, you know, I've tried that with a police officer. I got pulled over and I was speeding and I said, I didn't know the speed limit. And they said, sorry, you still get the ticket. Right? Sins of ignorance do not resolve us as guilt. And that's true. They were still guilty. But according to Mosaic law, now listen closely, they knew the law, and according to Mosaic law, there was an opportunity for forgiveness for sins of ignorance. Listen to Numbers chapter 15, verse 28. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally, by sinning in ignorance. That person will be forgiven. Now listen to this. But anyone who sins defiantly, willful, unrepentant sin, must be cut off from the people of Israel. In other words, Peter is not, he's not cutting them any slack here. What he's doing, he's saying, listen, you murdered God's son. You are guilty and deserving of death. But what he is doing, my beloved, is he's giving them a second chance. He's giving them a chance to be made right with God even though they killed God's servant. They participated fully in the murder of the author of life. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to kill the righteous one of Israel. But Peter's saying here, you have an opportunity because God is infinitely gracious and infinitely merciful and he wants you to be restored to him. You can be forgiven. You can repent. You have a second chance. And if you don't know that about Christianity, then let me tell you again, you have a second chance. It's got to be some of the greatest news of the gospel. Because when we first hear the gospel, our first thoughts are usually, if we are truly hearing it, I have no hope. And yet you do in Christ. Look at verse 19. Peter says, in light of this, repent therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, in rejecting God's servant, they were rejecting Yahweh, they were rejecting their God. And therefore, true forgiveness, according to Numbers, in order to, if you committed an unintentional sin, you'd bring a one-year-old female goat to the altar to be sacrificed. That's not what Peter's saying you can do. By rejecting God's servant, they rejected God, and they needed to change by putting their hearts and their minds to Christ, believing that he is, in fact, 
their Messiah, repenting and trusting in his power to save. These were the necessary actions for them to return to God, and they still are today. There's no sacrifice that you can make. There's no offering to the church. There's no good work that you can do. Your only hope is the only hope that they had, returning to God, confessing their sins, and putting their faith in who? The power of Jesus Christ to save through faith, because that's the only hope. Repenting and turning back to God. Oh, that would have been familiar language to them. They had heard about their forefathers for centuries who would turn away. God would call them to repent, and then they would repent. Again and again, going to their idols. I think the greatest example comes from Jeremiah. After revealing Israel's spiritual prostitution by worshiping false gods, listen to what God says to their forefathers in Jeremiah 3. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful. I'll be angry no more. But then he says, only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. Return, faithless people, declared the Lord. And they did. So like their forefathers, all the Jews standing there realized in rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting God. They, were, they had become a faithless people. The Jews, known for their faith in Yahweh, had become a faithless people in killing the Messiah. And so God says to them through Peter, repent and return to me when? Immediately. Do not wait. My beloved, each of us needs to hear and do the same this morning. Many idols in our lives, are there not? Many idols. I don't know what yours are, security, popularity, money. Idols that fight for your allegiance, fight for your love. Idols that need to be turned away from, that you might turn back to God, that you might be healed, and you might receive amazing blessings that come for all who are faithful, not faithless. Peter actually lists three here in this passage. I'm sure you heard them. Look at verse 19. The first is the blotting out of our sins. That, that literally means, it's such a great Greek word, it means to rub it out until you can't see it no more. Rub it, rub it, rub it, gone. You say, well, I need that because I stand guilty before a holy God. I need my sins forgiven. Amen, you do. Not only do you need your sins forgiven that you might have eternal life, but you need your sins forgiven right now. So that barrier that keeps you from being whole, like the lame man from becoming perfectly healthy, you need them forgiven so that you can commune with the author of life and actually live life. But there's a second thing. Peter says if you repent and turn back to God, your sins will be forgiven and times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. I don't even know if I need to elaborate on the word refreshing. Because I hear that, I mean, I hear that and all these incredible thoughts come to mind. I mean, just incredible, beautiful thoughts. Of, I need to be refreshed. It's actually a really difficult word. It's the only time it's used in the Bibles here, and then it's used in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 11, when God relieves Egypt of the plague of the frogs. So there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, uh, of cross-referencing we can do here. I do think, though, it's synonymous with, look at verse 21, the time for restoring all things. I think he's talking about the same thing. This idea of restoration, this idea of, re of refreshing, coming through repentance and faith, that God has that power to, to make us whole, to bring refreshing in our relationship with Him, to bring restoration in our relationship with one another. 
and with the lost world. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, all culminating in the third blessing. Look at the latter part of verse 19. He says, repent and return so that he, God the Father, may send the Christ appointing for you, that's Jesus, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Christ ascended into heaven, and he's not going to come back until it's time to restore all things. So listen, here's the phenomenal news. Repent and turn back to God, and you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be refreshed. You'll be restored. And you will get to wait for the Savior to come. And when he returns, he will see you as a friend. He will see you as a friend. You will see him as a Savior, not a judge. Verse 19 again, that he, God the Father, may send the Christ appointed, he said, for you. That's Jesus. The same Jesus that ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he's going to return in glory. He's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new, all things whole. The question for the Jewish audience, the question for us and, and for mankind throughout the centuries is not, listen closely, it's not how we will receive him when he comes. We got that wrong the first time. The question we need to ask ourselves is how will he receive us when he comes? How will he receive us? The first time we rejected him as the holy and righteous one, we rejected him as the author of life, and we had him put to death. This time when he comes, he will come as the reigning king that he is with all the angels and all the saints, and he will bring heaven down to earth. And listen, there will be no second chances on that day. No second chances. Peter's Peter's audience, they denied the Christ the first time. He's saying, listen, repent and turn back. This is your second chance. It's the same for us, my beloved. When you sinned against God, you were born into sin, you lived the life of sin, you made yourself an enemy of God, God is saying to you, this is your second chance. Repent and turn back to me. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. They had ample revelation. We have more. We have more. We have information. We have revelation at our fingertips. You have smartphones where you can pull up Scripture and have God speak directly to you. They were now without excuse. We are without excuse, my beloved. In other words, if if you reject Christ now, if you continue in willful, unrepentant sin, then it's no longer a sin of ignorance, right? And if it's not a sin, sin of ignorance, then the law makes it very clear you will not be forgiven. Listen, this is from Numbers 8 again, verse 31. Because they have despised the Lord's word, Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith in him, because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. My beloved, the return of Jesus to bring times of refreshing will only be refreshing to those who know him and receive him and follow him in this life. It will only be a time of restoration and a time of healing for all those who have put their faith in the power of Jesus' name here. Before you take your last breath, all those who refuse in this life will be rejected in the next. They won't be looking for the day to come with any joy. They'll be like those in Revelation 6.16. 
who called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. So with the return of the Messiah upon their hearts and minds, and I pray upon yours, Peter closes his sermon with a final call to repentance. He's giving them no slack. He's saying, Jesus is the Christ. Repent and follow him. And of course, he's going to pull out I mean, if you're speaking to a Jewish audience, you're going to pull out a trump card, and that's going to be Moses. Go to Moses. They may not listen to Peter, but they'll listen to Moses. So he quotes Moses. He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to it. Verse 22, look with me. Peter now is preaching. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Moses said that, speaking of the Christ. And so Peter's saying, listen, we know what happened to our forefathers who did not listen to Moses. It did not go well with them. They perished in the desert. They did not enter the promised land. They did not know the rest of God and being with God's people in the land that flowed with milk and honey. And so he quotes Moses to say, the warning applies to you too. My beloved, the warning applies to us too. They rejected Moses and they suffered a horrible fate. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater prophet. Reject the teachings of Jesus and your end will be judgment too. Look at verse 23. And it shall be. This is Moses still speaking. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, Jesus Christ, shall be destroyed from the people. Refuse to listen to Jesus, who is God's servant, you're refusing to listen to God. Refuse to listen to God, you'll be cut off from God and from God's people. Refuse to listen to Jesus. You say, well, Jesus said a lot of things. What specifically are you talking about? Well, we would want to say that we, are, we don't want to refuse to listen to Jesus and all that he says. But what is it specifically that if they don't listen to Christ, they will be destroyed? In John chapter 6, Jesus actually gave us the answer. In John chapter 6, a large crowd said to Jesus, listen, what must we do to be doing the works of God? A.K.A., what must we do to be saved? That's what they're asking. Jesus answered him, this is the work of God. You ready for this profound answer? That you believe in him whom he has sent. It's Christ. That you believe in him in whom he has sent. And then Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of my Father, listen with all your might, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And Jesus says, And I will raise him up on the last day. What's the work of God? Believe in Christ and have eternal life. That's how much God wants you to be saved. Eternal life, enjoying the ultimate and eternal promised land through repentance and faith in whom God's suffering servant. This is the gospel message. It's always been the gospel message. Going all the way back to Moses in Numbers saying, listen to the prophet. Listen and obey the prophet. Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, the greatest prophet. Verse 24, and all the prophets 
who have spoken from Samuel. So Moses to Samuel and all those who came after. Every single prophet also proclaimed these days, what days? Days of refreshing. Days of restoration that come by grace from God through faith in Christ. The prophets have been talking about it for centuries. And now they have arrived. And it was going to begin with the Jews. Look at verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets. Moses, Samuel, and all those who came after. You are the sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These were the covenant people. They knew what the prophets said. They knew the covenant made with Abraham. They knew that offspring was singular and would be one person, one Savior, and he had come and had been fulfilled in Christ. So Moses is saying, you know, you of all people know that this is God's servant, God's suffering servant. And God, being gracious, sent Christ to them first, to the bloodline of Abraham. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you, the Jews, first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God does not want a single one of his people to perish. God's suffering servant, the greater Moses, the greatest prophet, the seed of Abraham. Peter can't make it any more clear to this group of Jews who this man is. Sent to them that they might turn from their wickedness for their rejection of the Son and be what? And be made whole with God. Such a simple message and yet utterly life-transforming. It was their second chance. It was their second chance not to be cut off from God or from God's people. Now the Jewish culture, if you do not know this, that would have been, that would have been their greatest nightmare. If you were to say to a Jew in the first century, living in Jerusalem, what is your greatest fear? They would say being cut off from God and being cut off from God's people. And yet here, Peter's saying, if you do not receive Christ as the Christ, you will be cut off. You see, the Jews understood something that I still think we miss. They understood that the good life, and when I say the good life, erase the Western picture of that. The good life is wholeness. The good, nice, good life is not being broken. Broken inside, broken in your relationships, broken in a culture. The Jews called it shalom, peace, wholeness, completion with God. They understood that the only way that a person Someone made in the image of God can be whole, can be complete, and live the real good life is having a right relationship with God and with God's people. That's why this threat of being cut off from the people, being cut off from God, was so horrific to the Jews. They could not fathom it. They could not fathom how bad it is. So my question to you as I close is, does your life reflect that same priority? God and God's people. Would losing God and God's people be the worst thing that could happen to you? Now intellectually, and in terms of your orthodoxy, you'll say, well, of course. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That would be the worst thing. I love God's church. That would be the worst thing. But in terms of how you live, is it really the worst thing? And would others be able to know that by how you live your life? Would others be able to say to you, oh, I know that if you lost God and God's people, that would be a nightmare for you because of your time and your energy and your monies. It's devoted to God. It's devoted to the bride. 
Would people be able to see that? Or would they say, no, I, I think that the worst thing that could happen to you would be for your career to come to an end. I think the worst thing that could happen to you is that your children may get sick because you idolize your children. I think the worst thing that could happen to you is that your 5,000 square foot house might burn down in a fire in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Right? People will know us by how we live. No one questioned Jesus' love for the Father or for the church. No one. He was perfectly obedient to God's perfect word, allowing his own people to hand him over to a pagan governor, allowing his own people to trade him like a baseball card for a murder. The holy and righteous one, the author of life, permitted his body to be broken, his blood to be spilled for enemies so that through his suffering he might serve us by what? By forgiving us of our sins and bringing the refreshing and restoration that we need and that is wholeness with God. Christ did this great work so that sinners like us through repentance and faith in his name might be saved. My beloved, if this love for you is real, then people will know. They'll know. They'll say, oh, the worst thing that could happen to you is you losing God and the community in which you have been saved into. Spending your life repenting and turning back to God. Your life. You say, but isn't that, isn't that just when we get saved? Yes, and every day until you see Jesus. Why? Because we continue to sin. Every day we are to return back to God. Every day we are to confess our sins because sin ruins the relationship with God and with everybody else. So we confess that. People will know our true love by how we serve one another. I think it's utterly profound and appropriate that Peter identified Jesus as God's servant. So too you now in Christ. You're God's servant. Do your brothers and sisters see that? Do they see you serving one another by fighting for one another's faith, encouraging you to press on, being here so that you might know each other's struggles and lift them up when they are discouraged? Are you serving husbands by loving your wives? Wives, are you serving by being a helpmate to your husbands? Parents, are you raising up your children to know Christ? Are you serving them in that way? Brothers and sisters in the church, are, are you serving each other that we might be edified and grown up into Christ together? And what about our neighbors? Do they know? I mean, do they know that you are a Christ follower? Do they know the most important person in your life is Jesus Christ? And do they know that the church matters to you? Do they even know Christ? That Christ came to serve us by dying on the cross, revealing that to us that we might repent and believe. Do your neighbors know about this man of sorrows? Do they know? Do they know his name? Do they know that they have a second chance because they are sinners too? Do they know they have a second chance that there's power in the name of Jesus through faith to save them too? Young and old, do they know, my beloved, that they can be refreshed by the gospel? Have they heard it from your lips? I want my neighbors to sing what we had a chance to sing. 
I want him to sing it with us in the eternal realm. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to what? To reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, what? Exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom us to bring, then anew, complete restoration, complete refreshing, then anew this song will sing. What will we sing? Hallelujah, what? What a Savior. Oh, my beloved, I, I pray that from Peter's sermon, you can see what a Savior you have. He is the suffering servant. He is the greater Moses. He's the greatest prophet. He's the seed of Abraham. And he gave his life to bring us in. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have to ask you for faith. Because we lack it. We have to ask you for power because we lack it. We come to you as children, Lord, knowing that you have, through Christ, already made us whole. We ask, Lord, that during our sojourn on earth, that you make us more whole, that you increase our love for you and for one another, and that you grow us deep in this faith, that we might access this very real power that is dispensed from the throne. Not as magic, Lord, but as people walking in faith. I ask that you would do that, Lord, so that we as a church might be a brilliant testimony to the gospel of grace in this community and in our own mission fields. Lord, I'm so thankful for Peter faithfully proclaiming before a crowd that could have easily turned angry, but he preached the full gospel. He declared the death and resurrection of Christ, and he called them to repent. May us, Lord, may this church have the same bold testimony with our mouths that we might love our neighbor rightly telling them about a crucified, risen Savior and their need to repent to. And then, Lord, be pleased to save many through this church. Redeem many souls through this church, Lord. We ask that you would do this for your glory because you love saving people. Do it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.